Well, hello, friends. I'm glad you could join me again this week for another of our Wednesdays in the Word. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans, working our way through it verse by verse, seeking to unfold the Word as God has delivered it to us in the form of the Scriptures. I'm going to pick up our reading today in chapter 2 of the book of Romans in verse 17 and read on through verse 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, a bit of context for us. From the midpoint of the first chapter and on through where we are now in the second chapter, we've been looking at the issue of sin, a universal problem. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the issue is not merely that all have sinned, but that sin has consequences. Not just consequences in terms of temporal issues here in this world, but eternal consequences because sin separates us from God. All have sinned, and therefore all are separated from God because of that sin. God deals with us and must deal with us because of his very nature in light of all of his nature. And God is not only love, wanting relationship with us, but he is also righteous and holy and just. And no unrighteous, unholy thing can dwell in his presence. Sin is a very real problem for all of humanity. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone who has ever lived breaks the greatest of the commandments, which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only that, but everyone who's ever lived breaks all of the multiplicity of commandments that are there in terms of moral, ethical failure. All need to be saved. That's why Romans 1.16 is so wonderful. <laughs> Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. We also talked in those verses from about the midpoint of chapter 1 until our current verses about the reality that even relatively good people compared to other people in this world are not good compared to God. They need the gospel too because God doesn't mark on a curve. There's no partiality with God. One sin separates us from him. It's been true since the Garden of Eden. It continues to be true. He doesn't mark on a curve. Now, in our last time together, we're looking at the preceding verses, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 2. We were talking about the question of what about those who've never heard about that gospel, who've never heard about the scriptures? What about those people? And the answer to that, as we saw it together, was that those people without the law are still under judgment as well. Why? Because God created us, and he's created everybody, he created us with a conscience. 
an inner law in which he puts some of his law, some of his dictates upon the hearts of men and women. And that conscience operates like a moral compass, helps us to know how we ought to live. It gives us a guidance by guilt, if you want to frame it that way, and all break their conscience. All people fail in sin before God. Those with the law fail because they knowingly break the law. Those without the law, without God's written truth, rebel against the conscience that God has placed within them. And so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all, therefore, are accountable before God. Those that have never heard, never had the gospel, are not lost because of the lack of exposure to that truth. They are lost because of their sin, because of their personal sin. Well, that's the backdrop to our verses today. Now, today, in these verses, God addresses another related question that can arise in relationship to this question of sin and the inevitability of separation from God due to sin. And in the issue is this. What about being religious? Is it possible, by being a more religious person, that somehow God will provide a way to solve the sin problem for us? That being religious will solve it, and we can then be with God, even though we are sinners and have stumbled? Some people assume that just being more religious will make them acceptable to God. But brothers and sisters, as we will see in these verses, they are wrong. He uses the example of the Jews of religious people, people who through religious activity seek to solve their sin problem. He calls them an example of committed religious folk. And let's see what he has to say about the Jews, because again, he's not talking just about the Jews, but as a representative of all people who are seeking a religious solution to the problem of their sin. And he says, let's examine these together. And we'll discover in examining it why religion in itself is a dead end. It will not by itself solve the problems in our lives. Well, the Jews, as an example of the religious folk, trusted in being more religious in order to find acceptance with God. And in these verses 17 to 20, the opening ones that I read to you, we see three things about them that help in a way not just to clarify the Jews, but all religious people. The first one, it says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, they were relying on the law. There's the phrase I want you to remember. The Jews, as is true of all religious people, were relying on the law for acceptance with God. Now, what does that mean? That means they were relying on their best effort to keep what God had commanded in order to find acceptance with God. They believed if they made their best effort about it, if they worked hard, in a sense, on the outside to clean up things, that God would reward that with offering them forgiveness and offering to them eternal life with him, avoiding that inevitability of judgment that we've looked at previously, the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. 
They believed, the Jews and, as I say, all religious people to a degree, believed that if they only worked hard at cleaning up the outside of themselves, that God would accept them. God would see that as legitimate and acceptable. But I want you to listen to these verses out of Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, where Jesus discusses this very misunderstanding and he discusses it in the context of talking about some of the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and scribes. Notice how he puts it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You hypocrites! You clean up the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent, you blind Pharisees! First clean up the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. <laughs> What's he saying? Well, obviously what Jesus is saying is that no matter what you did on the outside that made you look and appear more righteous to other people, God sees our heart, and he knows what's on the inside. And unless religion solves the inside, not just sort of reforms the outside, <laughs> there's no solution to the sin of humanity. So first of all, religious people are relying on the law, whether they're Jews or others. Some sort of external commitment to acting in certain moral and upright ways, that somehow that's going to make all the difference before God. And God is saying, I don't think so. Secondly, it says, and they boast in the Lord. They boasted as Jews in their presumed relationship with God. As in a sense, all religious people who are relying on religion, not the Lord Jesus Christ, boast in their religious activity as somehow making them closer to God. The Jews boasted about their presumed relationship with God. They thought they were closer to God than other people because of their religious efforts. They even prided themselves on being God's people. But the Bible shows us in no uncertain terms that religious activity does not equal relationship with God. We need much more than religious works, much more than religious rites, religious sacraments, to solve the problem that is ultimately an internal problem, which is a sinful heart. Religion alone will never lead to a solution to the inner problem, and therefore religion alone will never lead to reconciliation with God, a future and a hope, in right relationship with God, forgiven. Religious people boast that their religious activity makes them closer to God. It is not so, brothers and sisters. Then, the third thing that the Jews, as representatives of religious folk, trusted in, they were sure they were following the right path. Notice how it puts it here. You know as well and approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law. You're sure that you yourselves are the guides to the blind, the light to the people in darkness. They're certain that they're following the right path. 
The word sure translates a Greek word which means to be unshakably convinced, fully persuaded. They, it describes an individual as no second thoughts about what they're having confidence about. The religious folk think that they are the enlightened ones. And if they can just convince other people to turn over a new leaf, begin to practice their religious practices, that somehow they're going to be right with God. In fact, the terminology used in these verses is that the religious folk, the Jews, but not only the Jews, believe that they are the guides to the sin-blinded people, that they are the lights in the midst of the darkness of the world, that they are, as it put it here, the proper teachers of the children to guide them to the Lord. They saw themselves as the embodiment of truth and the embodiment of the answer to the human dilemma of guilt and sin before God who is really there. But notice what Jesus says about them now, and they're talking about the Jews, but not only the Jews, all religious folk. He says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. <laughs> Later on, in, in earlier in Matthew 15, 14, he says, Let them alone, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into the pit. <laughs> religious people the Jews and others, are convinced that they're saved because they are relatively more righteous, more knowledgeable, and often much more religious than the world that surrounds them. And once again, falling back into the previous problem of thinking God must mark on a curve, they're convinced that that's all that's involved in it. But God confronts it directly, and he poses a very unique issue that has no solution for the religious person. And the issue has to do, does knowing equal doing? Verse 21, he says, And you who then teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Etc., etc. You boast in the law and dishonor by breaking the law. He says, You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? God asks the Jew and the religious folk two impossibly hard questions. And the questions are framed by God in a way to get at the very heart of why the answer they're resting in, the religious answer, is so frail and faulty and ultimately no answer at all. Number one, do you teach yourself while you're trying to teach other people. Obviously, the religious person, in a way, is trying to teach other people, either by example or by formal words, to start to follow the path they've determined is the best path. And so God, in a way, is saying to them, listen, are you really listening to what you're saying? Are you paying attention to the essence of what you're telling other people? Or is it simply more do as I say, not as I do sort of approach to other people? And of course, that's one of the great criticisms of religious folk, whether they're Jews or other religious folk, is that there's a hypocrisy inherently in their lives. And what they're challenging people to do, they don't do with any kind of real consistency. He says, secondly, closely tied to that, can you actually show that you act on what you teach? 
Can you show that your life behavior demonstrates the very things that you're purporting to say? Put it another way, are you absolutely consistent with what it is you profess to believe? And here's the problem that we've already seen in the book of Romans. Nobody is absolutely consistent. <laughs> Even if they believe something to be true, they can't live in light of it. They can't consistently follow it. No one is able to live consistent with what they profess. And I believe this reveals what I'll call the Achilles heel of the religious person, whether they're Jewish or otherwise. The Achilles heel, the frailty point, using that analogy from Greek mythology, the Achilles heel is that they cannot live consistent with what they profess. That very inconsistency should cause them to question their confidence in the thing that they're following. But instead of questioning that confidence, they are more sure about it, especially when they look at themselves as inadequate of an example as they are. Compare themselves to other people whose life performances are pretty pathetic. <laughs> uh, no one has ever been able to live before God consistently, perfectly. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even those that try to turn over a new leaf as the way to somehow make things right with God can't live consistent with the new leaf that they've sought to turn over. Even those that are now trying desperately to be more religious to add that to their life never can be religious enough to totally solve the problem. Everything they do, if it's successful at all, remains external to their life. It's a cleaning up of the outside of the cup, the outside of the tomb, as the, uh, as the descriptive words of Jesus back in Matthew. Instead, it never gets at the heart of what truly needs to be changed if we're going to be right before God. Because remember, God judges not only our actions, but our hearts, our thoughts, our attitudes. Who could stand before God on that foundation? No matter what new leaf you've turned over, no matter what moral uh, rearmament has taken place in your life, uh, you haven't changed one iota the deepest problem of sin and rebellion against the God who is really there. Now, what's the point? What God is saying is not that there's no value in religiosity per se. He's just saying it's not valuable to save you. One of the things that you will learn if you seek to be religious or should learn as you seek to be religious is that you should learn that you need to be humble before God and unsettled before him, not prideful and self-confident in the good job you're now doing. Instead, as you seek to be more religious, seek after the Lord more. What it should produce in you is guilt. What it should produce in you is more and more of a sense you're not who you need to be. Thinking of Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's vision of God, when he came as this godly prophet and stood before the Lord, his response to God was, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, I'm undone. <laughs> he understood the closer he got to God, the more he better not be relying on himself. The religious person, in seeking to be more religious, nothing wrong with trying to please God by our behaviors, but 
In the midst of doing that, the realization should be there that, Lord, this will never cut it ultimately. I want to please you with how I'm living, but I know I've already failed enough that I cannot rely on that for eternal life. I cannot rely on that to withstand the judgment that I can never escape because it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. Now, instead, the truly religious person should be drawn to their knees inevitably as they approach God, and they should say to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember, Jesus gave us that example, that sort of parable of the, of the publican and the, the, of the Pharisee and the, and the uh, sinner. And he said, they both came before the Lord. And, and the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like all those other people. And the sinner came and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, God, and Jesus said, the one who said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinners, the one who went away justified. Religion has a proper place in making us mindful of how far short we fall of the standards of God and an encouragement to us to keep on keeping on as best we can. But it also drives us to our knees to say, God, there's got to be another answer to my sin. I can't atone for it myself. I can't compensate for anything I've done in the past. And worse, I'm still finding myself stumbling in the present. Religion has no solution to that underlying problem. And by the way, for people who are seeking after the Lord, people who are religious in the right sense, it should make them all the more compassionate to other people who are stumbling. Not more condemning, but more compassionate, more of a realization that there but for the grace of God go I. And also the compassion that says none of us, none of us can earn standing with God and reconciliation with God because of our efforts at trying to be better people. Not wrong to seek to align with God's truth, but it will not solve our sin problem. The great irony that he ends this passage with, these verses that I'm looking at today, is this. He says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's that saying to us? Well, God is using the Jews as an example, but I believe it's applicable to all who are relying on religious effort alone to be right with God. The religious efforts of the Jew actually created an obstacle to people seeking after God, an obstacle ultimately to the gospel in this world. And the quote of this passage, I'm saying the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, is a quote out of the prophet Isaiah 52, verse 5. And what God was confronting the Jews with back in Isaiah's day was the fact you've missed the point, and now the world blasphemes God because of your behavior and failure. And even today, the world around us, the culture, the people, in a way blaspheme God by the failure of the religious. Why? Because they accuse the religious of being hypocrites. They know that those even who seek to be religious are ultimately not much different from them. They know that they are sinners just like them. And they also know that the condemnation that they may sometimes feel from such religious people is a, is a condemnation coming from those who have no right to condemn. Think of Jesus' words 
and the woman caught in adultery, the one who's without sin cast the first stone. They know no one intuitively should be casting the stone, not because what they're doing is okay, but the people that are confronting them about it in themselves are not okay, and things are not the way it needs to be. Here's the point, I believe, fundamental to all of this. The unbelieving world around us knows that a God, if he's really there, and a God who is really there, if he marks on a curve, or if he is satisfied with self-righteous people, people who simply turn over a new leaf and seek to be religious, that that type of God is hardly worth seeking after. That type of God has no appeal. That type of God is not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is holy, loving, just. He is the Creator God, the Lord of hosts. And we seek after Him because He created us for relationship with Him. And His standards don't change because there's, we already saw, no partiality with God. When the world, knowing about that God or being told about that God, are also told that there's a solution to the universal problem of sin which separates everybody from God, we have a chance for them to listen. Because that type of God who would care enough to create a solution to the unsolvable is a God worth knowing. The religious person generally projects a God that the unsaved world looks at and says, I don't think that God's really worth knowing at all. And that's why the religious person ultimately becomes an obstacle, not an asset. Why God is blasphemed in the minds of people because of the very performance and perspectives of the religious person. So again, it's not a condemnation only of Jews. It's a condemnation of all who are resting in their religious efforts to find right standing with God. Now next time, the chapter ends by turning our attention to building on what we're looking at right now to the issue of religious rites, sacraments, and explains to us why religious rites cannot make us right in God's eyes. We need something vastly more powerful in order to make us right, we who are sinners and separated from God. And of course, what it is that's more powerful is the gospel. Join me then as we examine that together next week. God bless.